Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. I still have to stop myself before saying 60s because we're in a whole new era of the show. Except once in a while we take a book from 1997. On my podcast in the next quarter, we are working in content from Flashback Month in 97 as well as some of uh, Marvel's earliest continuity that is set later. That I worded that way wrong. Some of Marvel's more recently published books that are set in early continuity. We're going to be working a lot of that in as we continue working our way up. So today's feature issue is uh, Excalibur Minus One. We've covered a number of the Minus One books on the show already, but this is a very exciting episode today because we get to officially introduce Nightcrawler in one of his weirdest appearances. (laughs) This is a character we'll spend a lot of time with uh, in the coming years on the show. I am so thrilled to be joined by three of my nerdiest and best looking friends. Uh, Anna Peppard is here for the first time, uh, Seth Martel, and uh, Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos. I am so happy to see all of you here. As we are doing our introductions today, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And then our intro question for today, uh, in honor of Mr. Kurt Wagner himself, uh, do you have any memories of your first time at the circus? Uh, let's start with Seth. Good morning. Uh, my name is Seth Martel. I, he, him. I um, have been doing art with the show for just under a year now. It's been a while. And uh, I have a book coming out in the spring. Uh, I've also been in COVID Chronicles through Graphic Mundi. And I've never been to the circus. Oh, not even once? Have you ever seen clowns? I would have no reason to go. That sounds like a nightmare to me. Do you have any general thoughts on the circus? I'm not going. (laughs) No (laughs) thoughts. I want nothing to do with it. No elephants inside a tent, (laughs) 10 feet from you in a little ring. No, I do not like the circus. (laughs) Absolutely fair. Uh, Let's go to Anna next. Hi, Anna. Hello, good morning. So happy to be here. Um, I'm Anna Papard, pronouns she, her. I don't know what people know me from. I have a book called Super Sex. They probably know me from promoting Nightcrawler on Twitter if they're listening to your show. (laughs) Usually tweeting about Nightcrawler or Lucifer. Um, (laughs) One of those two things lately. I'm Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Um, And yeah, Memories of the Circus. I, I do know that I went as a child to the Shrine Circus when they still had the animal acts and everything, which I don't condone, but I was a child. I didn't have a choice. I was there. And I, I have a vague memory of it, but it's like one of those reconstructed memories. I have a stronger memory of going to Cirque Soleil when I was like a young teenager, like maybe like 12. And I specifically remember it was super expensive and my rich aunt took me and I like almost fell asleep during it because I thought it was so boring. And I feel so guilty about that because I I know it was great. I do. But like there were these like acrobat things where they did the slow motion thing of bodies going into other bodies. And I was 12 and I was just like, oh, God, like when is there something going to explode? I just I can't stand it. So I would love to have an opportunity to go again. But that is my one my one recent-ish experience with anything circus-related, and I haven't been in a very long time. And I tried to go a couple of years ago to to one, and I couldn't recruit somebody to go with me, but maybe maybe in the coming years. We'll see. 
Anna, it's great to meet you in person. I followed you on Twitter for a long time. Uh, when I was doing an Excalibur show, of course you had to be my first invitation. So I'm so happy you're here. Oh, yes. People also might know me from the Ogasha Galiawa podcast, where we are reviewing every issue of Excalibur, one issue a week for 126 plus weeks. That's my Excalibur connection. We haven't made it to the minus one issue yet. We're doing it when it came out. So, so we'll do it a little bit later. My podcast is all over the place and I love it just because it works just like my brain does. <laughs> and then finally, I'm so happy to welcome back my friend, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Chad. So happy to be back. Um, yeah, my name is Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos. I am a prose and comic book writer. Uh, my professional background is in public health. And I'm also a board member of Graphic Mundi, where I review uh, graphic novel uh, submissions and she, her are my pronouns. And first memories of the circus. So I actually did a whole Instagram post on my first memory of the circus, if not my first most influential um, about a month ago. So I'm totally ready for this. So I remember, I don't know if I was seven or whatever, sitting with my mom and watching a friend of mine just eating cotton candy like crazy. and. I turned to my mom and I said, is it okay to just do what you want and just eat cotton candy, even though it gives you cavities? And she kind of paused. I wasn't really asking about cotton candy. I was ask, actually, actually asking my mom how I should live my life. Is it okay to live a life where desire is your center? Like I, this was, it was, it was a big moment. I remember as if it was yesterday. And she said, no, if you know it causes cavities, you probably shouldn't do it. Didn't say, you know, everything in life is balanced, but I took my mother's answer as how I lived my life. Like, I was basically saying, can I just fuck indiscriminately? Um, maybe not at seven was I thinking this, but those were, would have been the implications if <laughs> she said yes. Um, and not think about consequences and just do what I want based on pleasure. So that's my first memory of the circus, cotton candy and... Um, making a very important life decision, whether right or wrong, and how to live my life. Fantastic. Uh, finally, <laughs> my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You know me as the host of this show. I uh, I romanticized the circus when I was a kid. I grew up in rural Missouri, and I remember being maybe seven or eight and going to the circus for the first time. And it was the big top, and it was the motorcycles spinning around in the little cage and the like a lady with some bears that were dancing and like elephants and like all kinds of crazy shit. And I remember being super enamored by the spectacle of it all. And then you grow up and you realize there's a lot of problems with enslaving animals and all of these like ethical concerns that go into circuses. But I actually, uh, several years ago when I was first starting to really publish comics on my own. I wrote a whole book about the circus that never got published. And I spent several months researching circuses. And this whole idea of, um, you gotta go back into like the 1800s in like settled communities that had very little outlet for entertainment. There's no television, there's no radio. They are entertaining themselves by doing things publicly. And so the idea of a traveling show coming to town and putting on shows for people and then, you know, gathering coin, what that life must have been like. Uh, and then, of course, there's the vaudeville circuit, which is a completely similar but different thing. Uh, the, the idea of that uh, is kind of what happens when I go to a Cirque du Soleil show, Cirque du Soleil show nowadays, which is supposed to capture the spectacle. And the circus was equal parts, like what can we stretch the body to do? Like how can we defy danger? 
And also what, uh, what body horror can we work in here? So a lot of circuses used to have the freak shows, the, the two headed man or the, the, the world's largest woman or the bearded lady or, you know, whatever, whatever the idea of people being like, Oh my gosh, you, did you see this thing at the circus or at the freak show? And for me, I have to go to that energy if I really want to enjoy Nightcrawler as a character, because this is the world he grew up in where he didn't feel like a freak and he fit in with everybody. Uh, so we're going to talk more about that as we get into today's show, because it's all about Nightcrawler's uh, childhood in the circus. So before we even start with the interview portion, any comments on uh, on circuses or, or thoughts that are coming up as we just introduced that much? I will say that the Museum of Sex in New York City has a wonderful exhibit on circus life and human sexuality. Um, uh, it's definitely a trip. Um, academically, experience-wise, even have games. Um, so if that's your thing in your New York City, highly recommend the Museum of Sex's uh, circus exhibit. Fantastic. Any other thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I have thoughts about the representation of like circuses and X-Men comics and like how the Germanness of Nightcrawler's circus is never really handled in a way that makes sense to me because they often kind of do it more like an American circus and it's a little bit different the historical context of that I mean the traveling circus is more of an American thing like just as you're saying and so I don't know I don't have any complex thoughts about it related to this issue because we don't see a lot of it but certainly some weird geography of <laughs> Germany on display in this comic so there's that but that's not really related but yeah I don't know I was thinking about the dark side of circuses too which you do find coming up in some of Nightcrawler's history where he gets put in a freak show and that kind of thing and like the exploitative aspects of that and you know yeah, like people with disabilities were exhibited and you also had things like the Ethnological Congress where you just had people from other cultures exhibited and mm -hmm. um, portrayed alongside freaks and all of the huge racist implications of, of that whole melange. But um, but yeah, it's a context that X-Men comics go back to both for the spectacle and because it can be interesting in conversation with the mutant metaphor. So yeah, some yeah. stuff related to that to talk about today. So we're going to have some super cool commentary on this in the second half, but stick with us. I am so excited to bring Nightcrawler and some of the uh, non-60s X-Men to my show slowly over this next year before we get to Giant Size uh, number one. Uh, so I want to start just kind of nerding out. It's dawning on me as we're talking, although uh, I should have realized this before, but we have four published authors in the room. Uh, we all have kind of specialties and interests in different spaces. Let me kind of start with this question, if everybody's willing to answer, and we'll go in the same order uh, as the introductions. What inspires you or compels you to tell stories? Uh, I think being a storyteller in whatever modality, in whatever way, is something extraordinarily special. I have uh, an 11-year-old child who walks around carrying uh, loose leaf paper and just constantly is jotting down pictures and story ideas. And I remember being that as a child. I'd go see a Disney movie and then come home and start plotting the sequel when I was like six years old. That's, that's how my brain worked. And I watched that happen in them consistently. And there's something very special about uh, storytelling. Uh, so Seth, do you want to start with that? What uh, inspires or compels you to tell stories? Jeez, that's a deep way to start. Let's see. Uh, you know, I think part of it for me was thinking back 
to being the age group that I tried to tell this recent this this new book for and just wanting to give some sort of like leave something for them that was left for me and hope that maybe someone out there would enjoy it too the way I enjoyed certain books at that time and you know I don't know if you guys have certain comic issues or graphic novels that you kind of carried with you as you grew up even if you know that like they were meant for a time in your life but you still kind of have a uh a, like a spot in your heart for them or like they might just kind of dawn on you when you're doing daily things and I just kind of hoped that I could create something like that that's where like I think that's why nostalgia yeah and recreate nostalgia and like nostalgia for someone else too yeah yeah fantastic uh Anna do you want to take the same question yeah I mean I'm an academic and an essayist rather than a I mean a Sure, I write lots of fan fiction, but that hardly counts. Um, I totally counts anyway. <laughs> but yeah, in terms but of essay, things that essays people... <laughs> or stories too, that totally and counts. Of, and things of, in terms of things that are under my own name, um, I'm an academic and an essayist. But I do think I write from the personal a lot um, in my writing and in my in my public facing work, especially. I've written a lot about Nightcrawler in terms of uh, writing from the personal as well. And to me, I do think about an essay where you're interpreting a text and especially when you're adding a personal lens <laughs> there's this like quote from we'll go academic with it there's a quote from Foucault where he talks about sort of the nature of cultural criticism is just trying to tell the best story and that always made so much sense to me in terms of analyzing a comic book especially because comic books are so inherently subjective the way that we read them they're so suggestive they're so elliptical that you are just sort of telling the story of how you're reading it and so when I write a personal essay about how I'm interpreting a comic book, I mean, for one thing, I'm very interested in representing underrepresented gazes. I mean, sort of my subjectivity as like a woman desiring bodies in this space and especially often with a queer lens as well. That's very important to me in terms of bringing a personal lens to my comic scholarship because that's not a gaze that had been represented in comic scholarship when I was first getting into it sort of 15 years ago or so. I mean, increasingly so now. But, uh, you know, <laughs> because of people like me fighting for it. But so that's important to me. But just, yeah, like related to what Seth said, you know, trying to capture a feeling and trying to connect with people by capturing a feeling. And if people can see your subjectivity and acknowledge it through what you wrote, then even if they had a different experience of reading something, I think that they can connect with that experience of interpretation. And that's sort of what I try to do when I write a personal essay um, to kind of, yeah, just capture that experience of reading and capture the fact that we all read subjectively. But what does that mean? And how does it bring us closer to these stories? And I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but. <laughs> no, fantastic. Uh, before I even comment, let me turn it to Stephanie next. No, well, you can comment. <laughs> I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> I think for me, I don't really feel like it's a choice. I feel compelled uh, to create. Um, part of it is an expression of self, but part of it isn't self because I do fiction. Um, I It's kind of like I, hearing music in my head without words. And then when I put a pen and paper, because I'm old school, I do longhand, um, then it has words. So it's like 
that's how I, so it's more for me, like, I don't feel I have a choice in that. Um, I certainly do think it's a choice for me when I want to tell uh, stories I feel are, aren't being told enough, whether it's from my particular background and my family history um, and being shut out of publishing and not having a voice. There's certainly a lot of that. Um, uh, part of it is an act of resistance, social justice. We exist. Here I am. Um, so that's very intentional for sure. Um, but I, I really don't feel I have a choice. Um, I think Seth, uh, the amount of texts I send him and ideas <laughs> knows that I'm just bursting with stories and it's more about please, like one at a time. Um, I hear you guys, but like, I got to get Seth this one shot. I got to work on this graphic novel. Um, so I kind of feel more like a channel, if that makes sense. Um, and I just love creating. I am not the only person who is constantly bombarding Seth with uh, story ideas via text. This is a good thing. <laughs> um, I, uh, if I ask myself the same question, this show, my my podcast, came from a tremendous well of creative creative energy, and I feel compelled to use that energy. And when I'm writing or doing or producing something that inspires me, I feel fulfilled. And when I don't, I feel itchy and uncomfortable. So before before the pandemic, I was making a documentary. Before that, I wrote books. Uh, and then uh, I, I the pandemic was winding down. I'm like, I need somewhere to put all this space. And this podcast has weirdly become a place for me to tell stories. And the reason I tell stories is to inspire truth and to gather community and to find meaning in things and just to entertain ourselves, lose our lose our brains. From when I was a kid, that's what I love most about stories. It's, this, it's an escape. It's a way for my brain to engage in something bigger or out there to find uh, meaning somewhere. And I think we're doing that consistently on the show, sometimes in very silly ways, sometimes in very serious ways. And it's nice to have uh, all of that in between. Uh, okay, Seth Martell, are you ready uh, to take the hot seat for a moment, my friends? <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, I, I know you well enough to know this will make you uncomfortable, but Seth is a phenomenal artist and a really genuinely incredible human being. I first reached out to Seth to do some art for my wall because I am assembling this nonsense crazy wall of 60s X-Men characters done by different artists. Uh, and we started chatting and we became really, really good friends. I don't have a lot of very close friends in my life. And Seth has become one of my closest. Uh, we collaborate on the podcast. He is regularly producing art and sharing ideas and giving insight. And it just so happens Seth is an incredible storyteller in his own right. Uh, we're going to talk about his newly coming out book in just a few minutes. Uh, Stephanie, I know you know Seth well. Uh, also, uh, before Seth even has a chance to defend himself, would you like to heap on any additional praise? <laughs> um, well, he's just such a swell guy, if I can use the word swell. Um, um, we met uh, in a comics forum, and, and Seth, if I may <laughs> say our, our origins, um, and he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you seem sane. <laughs> Let's do some comics together. And I had been in, admiring his art on that forum. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really honored that uh, we entered publishing, I think, right? More or less, right? I mean, you had a head start, Seth, um, together. And I'm um, so proud and, and such a fan of Seth. He's a great guy, great artist, great storyteller. Everything you said, go Seth. So, uh all listeners, you cannot see Seth openly uncomfortable right now, but I'm really relishing in it. 
Uh, Seth has a new book coming out uh, called Mare. And I have had the wonderful fortune of having read Mare. I got to read it again last night before this show. Before I start on Mare, Seth, tell us what Mare is and where it comes from. And Mare is M-A-R-E for everyone listening, rather like Nightmare, as opposed to like the mayor of a town. <laughs> sure. So uh, Mare is, uh, it, it kind of, it's goes back to folklore it, it's different versions and different especially european backgrounds and it really depends on who tells you the story and where it comes from and how truthful your grandma tells you that story maybe uh but it's some sort of disturbed spirit or a uh, sense of like lingering or longing or uh, something that is uh, a wrong meant to be turned right that bothers you in your sleep and often manifests itself in the form of sleep paralysis or some sort of kind of in or out of sleep nightmare. And uh, that's the kind of the easiest way I can describe it. Uh, tell us about the book, Mare. The book is, um, it's a graphic novel that I've been working on. Um, uh, it's been done for a while. It's a crazy part about publishing. so. And when you, you're talking about something in the past, you have to kind of really tap back to thinking about it. So if you see me kind of rolling my eyes and back of my head and thinking for a sec, that's why. Um, it is a story about a girl named Indy who has finished high school and is in a small town, just kind of a little bit lost with herself and her world and her life. She's restless and frustrated and often making bad decisions, but she's trying her best. And it kind of reminded me of a lot of people I knew at that age and I wanted to tell that story like I feel like we've all kind of hit that spot where we don't know what's best for us or how to get ourselves out of a funk and we're not necessarily making the best decisions either yeah India is a character I really uh, resonate with and uh and Anna and, and uh, Stephanie if you have comments on India I'd love to hear them she is a girl trapped in a set of difficult circumstances in a small town with a a dad who is heartbroken and drinking too much. And she has so much responsibility on her shoulders and everyone in the community. She kind of has that like Belle from Beauty and the Beast thing where she's a little bit odd and doesn't really fit in with everyone around her, but she's hardworking and doing her best and just not ready to put up with people's nonsense anymore because she's not sleeping. And when you're not sleeping, everything feels shitty. And so when people start, uh, start, interacting with her in unpleasant ways she we start this story with her finally kind of having had enough because there is problems happening in her brain at night and she doesn't know what's going on uh, uh, stephanie and, and anna if you've had a chance to look at mayor let me know some of your thoughts on india or this story yeah for sure i mean for i'm sorry anna is that okay um you know the one thing with with indy that I think sort of stands out uh, in, in contrast to a lot of no uh, graphic novels or novels like this is that she's trying to find her own way, but she's also not just having this sort of extreme American individualism. It's all about me and my life. She's trying to also take care of her dad, but also not lose herself. So we see this, I think, very healthy balance of like, how do I figure out my way? How do I figure my my, my life? But also acknowledge that that's my dad and I'm not going to pretend. So as a storyteller, Seth, I appreciate it. Um, seeing a character that has that sort of family balance and, and trying to figure out her own way. Um, uh, there's so many, I mean, I could just go on about this, so you could put me in line, Chad, but, you know, <laughs> what strikes me the most, and particularly with a lot of Seth's work and what draw, draws me to 
working with him so much is just how good he does female characters. I mean, these girls are just, they're fleshed out. Their friendship is so tender. Um, I, I love the very unique perspective of this novel, the setting, very working class. I mean, I understand it's upstate um, and we get uh, an anchor Poughkeepsie's mentioned. Um, goes back to the whole conversation when we were talking about uh, circuses and their role, like you could see there's more limited options here in the town. There's the diner, the donut shop, like it's very real, very regional. I feel like this can apply to a lot of places in the US. Um, but that tenderness, the friendship, um, I, I really, I got a sense of who um, Indy was. Indy uh, has some key relationships. And when you start this book, you jump in and you understand she has a history but you jump in just ready to go on this journey with her. She is such a likable character. And seeing the way she expresses herself in different places, her frustration, uh, her need for peace, when she finally gets that moment on the dance floor to just smile and relax and feel herself, when she has like one person in her life that she can trust and it just feels overwhelming. And the, uh, the anguish of not being able to sleep is something I think we can all go through. The story in this is a wonderfully solid book, but Seth's art in this is incredible. Uh, Seth has drawn uh, with me on the show for a while now. I've seen what he is capable of, but this feels like uh, so many artists uh, like to draw action and big splashy stuff, but a lot of this book is just people. It's the sequentials. It's the movement through things. And Seth, you do that so beautifully in ways that a lot of artists, I think, really struggle with. Uh, and then what makes this book stand out more than anything is the simple use of, it's mostly kind of black and white, but there are occasional just wisps of blue or red. And when you see blue, you know it means something. And the blue increases as the book goes on. And it's really, really uh, quite jarring. Uh, so Seth, you're, you of course can comment on anything we're saying right now, but I know you have a particular story about how the art and the color turned out the way they did in Mare. Uh, let me hear a little bit of your thoughts. Uh, it wasn't entirely intentional. So, I mean, it was it was intentional, but it was I really planned on it being a color, um, full color, just a, a muted. And, you know, I, I wanted a lot to recede in the background and have the blue be so dominant. And my uh, editor, uh, Kendra Bola, Bola Bolo, is so thoughtful. And as she was reading it, she just really did not believe that it needed that extra bit of color. And she thought it would take away from it. Um, and, you know, it's in my head, you know, I'm, I'm a graphic designer and I was always like thinking, you know, well, if we're going to pay for full color, why aren't we using full color? You know, <laughs> we're going to have full color sheets going through the press. Gosh, you know, I should just be having a full color book. Uh, but she really felt that it kept more impact. And, um, it, you know, it worked well because, again, because I'm a graphic designer, everything was on layers. And I was just thinking of how I could, you know, make it work in a production standpoint. Uh, and I had it all prepped for a colorist, but it it does look nice now that I see it packaged and finished. And I, I think until I actually got a an advanced copy in the mail, I'd been nervous because in my head, I, I you know, I grew up with color comics, just like all of you, you know, all of you did. And you just felt like you were getting more bang for your buck, you know, because it was color and it tells the whole story. But I, I understand that the restraint keeps it uh, a little bit more atmospheric and it, it, I think it was a good choice in the end. It's it's uh, it's a solid choice. Uh, it, totally. it together really beautifully. Yeah. 
Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. First off, are like, um, I mean, you touched on this, Chad, but just like the details, like just the scene. I know we're we're a podcast where we have, so you can't see, but where you have Indy like in the bed and like the room is all messy. Um, a close up of a, a sock that's not like perfect and tight, like in superhero comics, everything's skin tight and it's just slouchy, right? Like those details you can find in every panel. And I totally, uh, on a I'm on board with Kendra's decision, Seth. I know exactly what you mean as being a graphic designer. I'm like, you're paying for color, but it's so, so worked for this. And you got some pages with color, okay? So (laughs) (laughs) this book, I tried to think of it a little bit when I was reading last night, almost like a pilot episode. When you're reading a pilot episode of something, you want to really latch on to the characters and you want more. There are supernatural mysteries kind of abounding. There is human suffering. But it's the character of Indy that wants me, or that, ma- that makes me want to come back for more. I want a chapter two. I want to see what happens to her next. No pressure. But that's a good feeling to have when you're closing a book, to want more of something. Uh, and when I got to reread the book last night, it was uh, it was just a joy. I I really love it. Seth, when you see this released and people start picking up Mare, what do you hope they will uh, experience while reading this book? Gosh, um, you know, I think a big part of what I was trying to remind, especially people from that age, but also maybe older people looking back at that age in their life, is, you know, when you're in a bad place or a funk or things aren't working out for you, you know, you have to work through it sometimes, you know, by looking outside yourself and helping others, because that will make you feel better and make your life a little bit. Uh, maybe you'll see more clearly when you're looking outside of yourself. You know, it's, you know, you're not just uh, selfishly wallowing in your own issues. But if you really start emerging and looking outward on how you're affecting others and who you can, who you can help and how you can be more useful to the not useful to the world how how would i say it just a a better a better human to everyone and you're uh yeah then you're actually going to be climbing out of that hole in issues that you're in and uh the dark places that you're in could possibly start getting brighter being kind and being persistent and representing something rather than keeping truths from people and exploiting people and hurting people. I think that message of being kind and being true really stands through uh, with, uh, with frankly, both Indy's character and yours, my friend. Uh, I could probably say that about all of you in this room, but it's a, it's a really lovely book and the art is gorgeous. And when this is coming out, we will be sure to promote it. Uh, but please, please check out Mare, M-A-R-E by Seth Christian Martel, M-A-R-T-E-L. Seth, where can people find this if they'd like to order the book? Uh, that's pretty much anywhere you can get a book. That's a really nice thing about Graphic Mundi. They worked really hard to have it accessible at every bookstore, every major retailer. It's if you, if you uh, just put it in Google, you'll find it. It's it's nice. They 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 do their they do their groundwork and get it out there. So any bookstore you like that you can order it from. Seth texted me one day and like is like, holy shit, they're selling my book at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a surprise. 
<laughs> um, and I want to spend a few minutes getting to know you this morning as well. I've had a, the lovely opportunity to listen to some of your show. Uh, I think you have an incredible voice and uh, I, I love the way you occupy your own individual nerd space, which is always a huge compliment for me, even though that's a, an elusive statement. Tell me a little bit about what you do. You, you talked about academics and I'd love to hear about your connection to the X-Men as well. I think you and Stephanie are real kindred spirits in this space, if I'm honest. Oh, yeah, sure. And like, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet. So, uh, but I look forward to checking it out when I get a chance, because everything you're saying about it sounds so awesome. Um, And yeah, anyway. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So I consider myself like a public scholar. I mean, I'm an academic in the traditional sense. I teach at universities and I publish traditional academic scholarship, but um. I'm also involved with um, Andrew DeMann, who ran the account Claremont Run on Twitter. Yeah. Um, we currently have a Twitter project called Sequential Scholars, which we're trying to, we do have some funding for right now through academic outlets, and we're trying to get additional funding to keep that going, where we're doing sort of every couple of days, and sort of similar to, well, very similar to what Claremont Run used to do, which is threads analyzing a specific comic or a specific issue in comics, and we've been doing it kind of grouped grouped around themes or units because it's a little bit scholarly and yeah I mean I just like to use the privilege I have as an academic as somebody who gets to read and study and talk about things for a living to kind of bring that more into the public sphere and make it more accessible to people so when we started our podcast oh gosh oh golly oh wow which you know it's an issue by issue read through of Excalibur but it's also a comics academia podcast so we have critics and fans and people from various backgrounds on the show, but we usually have other comics academics, so people who study comics academically in some capacity, who often have a specialty in superheroes or even the X-Men. And yeah, doing stuff like, always oh, challenging in a podcast environment to do close readings of a visual medium, but we try, we try. <laughs> and yeah, talking a lot about issues of representation and just using this very accessible popular medium and uh, a space that people often know well which is the space of x-men comics to talk about all of those important political issues you know having to do with sexuality and gender and race and just storytelling more generally we talked a lot about postmodernism and sort of the earlier era of the podcast where excalibur was jumping through dimensions and doing a lot of self-reflexive stuff and talking about how that works in comics and how that works in culture in general but yeah, just that. I mean, again, using kind of my background to to make critical analysis more accessible to more people. And I think people really respond to it. I mean, you know, Claremont was, run was really successful, way more than Andrew ever thought that it would be. I mean, he's got like 15K followers on that account now, which is wild. And, uh, you know, it was just a project that he started during the pandemic and was going to see where it goes. And we're we're slowly building an audience. For Storytelling, man. I don't think we'll. <laughs> I don't think we'll. I don't think we'll get to 15k followers because, yeah, X Men is its own niche, and uh, I can't keep up with the daily threads that he was doing <laughs> because it was so much work. But I've been enjoying that project for now, and we're sort of figuring out what the future of it's going to be. Uh, Stephanie, I would love to hear your thoughts. And also, same question to you. Tell us about what you're doing and how it interfaces with your X-Men nerddom. <laughs> okay, fine. I don't really have much to say about that. But no, I want to ask Anna a question because I, I like went to your website and I would love to know where I could read some of these articles. Should I go through a university academic account? Because you do have a paper on, we got to talk about Jean Grey's uh, 
green dress and I got to read that. So if you could share, if we're interested in reading more of your work, um, uh, how we can find that. Uh, yeah, I've been procrastinating on finishing my personal website for forever. But if you look me up on academia.edu, you'll find links to, to okay, everything. Cool. It's up to I look forward to that. Yeah, I the Jeans Gray's green dress thing was for Comics XF. I do a lot of, well, not that much writing for them these days, but I'm in their sort of group of writers and currently reviewing the Sabretooth and the Exiles, Exiles series with Jude Jones for that site. So good. God, it's good. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and... Stephanie has also written some incredible scholarly works in speculative fiction for dreamers. She's been on our show a couple of times. I will sing your praises if you will not sing your own. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And actually related, yeah, the, the speculative fiction for dreamers, the story's gene. Yes, it references that gene. It's owed to Claremont on X-Men 137, and it won the 2022, because I got to say it, right? Chautauqua Janice Prize, um, a short story that entwines both X-Men history, Ode to Claremont, Jean Grey, and some family history. So yeah, that's my thing you made me say, Chad. I've been caught up in prose. Um, I have, there's so many projects. I have so many projects and I have a hard time saying no when editors ask me to be part of anthologies, even though <laughs> I know I should be focusing on some of my bigger projects. So I try to do it all. And prose so slows me down. Um, you know, comics is so fun because then I'm like, Seth can figure it out, right? Like, <laughs> I don't have to like think out everything because I'm not meant to. It's a shared journey. Um, so I've definitely been busy with a lot of uh, writing and getting ready to kickstart a special um, collection of my works with different artists, hopefully in October. And I do have an artist book out, The Funeral Singer. If people head to Janice Point Press, you could find more about that. But yeah, I've been busy with prose. My, this is a tall statement. One of my very favorite things about this show is getting to interact with intellectual, nerdy, wonderful, charismatic people who are doing crazy cool things. Now for our longer term listeners, if you have listened to the show for a while, Seth and Stephanie have both been on a few times. Uh, we did epic episodes on Fred Duncan with Seth and on the Jean Grey family with uh, Stephanie for the the Patreon, which are epic. both on the main channel now. <laughs> I, I think they're epic. <laughs> Ain't nobody else doing this. <laughs> I like taking things from different corners. My children are always asking, like, what are you working on today? And sometimes it's very serious topics and sometimes it's very silly. Uh, so I think let's we're going to transition here into the issue review, but I want to ask this question first. What do we love about Nightcrawler? Giant Size X-Men comes along when Claremont comes into the book right after that. And there are a whole new batch of iconic legend, legendary characters that people remember, quite frankly, more fondly than a lot of the original five team. Uh, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Wolverine, and Storm being the specific characters that have inspired off for a entire generation. If we focus in on Nightcrawler for just a, well, we're going to talk about him a lot today, actually. He is a blue-furred, acrobatic, Catholic, <laughs> teleporting, demonic, uh, uh, I forgot the guy's name. Uh, who does he style himself after? The uh, the old swashbuckling actor 
Uh, Errol Flynn. Yeah, Errol Flynn, <laughs> uh, like team leader. Uh, he's he's a complicated, contradictory, wonderful character who, in when I think of him, represents joy for me in a lot of ways more than a lot of the other characters do. I think of Nightcrawler and it makes me smile. What do we love about this character? What is it about Nightcrawler that that fascinates all of you? Uh, let's start with uh, with Anna since she's the uh, official or unofficial PR person. <laughs> I like, literally have like 93 episodes of a podcast talking about Nightcrawler and I've written many thousands of words about this, but I'll try to keep it short. I think the essence of Nightcrawler that draws so many people to the character is that he's a monster who doesn't hate being a monster and he doesn't perceive himself as a monster. And that was very different than how most sort of physically monstrous Marvel characters had been in 1975 when the characters introduced it. It took a few issues for him to kind of get that joy that he would that we associate with him. But still, it comes pretty early in the character's history, that sort of self-acceptance that we associate him with. And to me, just reading through the Claremont X-Men for the first time, that's what really stood out to me. I love a character like The Thing who struggles with his monstrousness. I think that's a really important story to tell as well. I love a character like Beast who struggles in the same ways. But having a character who is different, who looks different, that sees that as a positive thing, that loves his body and is allowed to love his body, who's allowed to be heroic and sexy. The fact that he is sexy is very important because monstrous characters rarely get to be sexy. I mean, in the Walter Mosley and Tom Riley Thing series that just wrapped up earlier this year, the Thing notably has sex while he's in his Thing form. And that is very, very unusual in comics in general. And so the fact that Nightcrawler can embrace his difference and, yeah, be a sexy swashbuckler, be fun, not be ashamed, even though he does have moments of doubt. I think that's what draws so many people to the character, because however you feel different, Nightcrawler can embody that for you. And he resonates with people in terms of disability, in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of sexuality again. You know, he's a character that's very easy to read within those contexts of queerness that so often attend the mutant metaphor because of his inherently different body and, you know, things associated with that. So yeah, that's a, that's a little snapshot of what draws me to the character. But I think you're you're definitely on the right track with the joy of the character. I just made a joke on Twitter like a week ago that there was a a letter in Excalibur number eighty seven, I think, where someone was writing in and they're like, "Please keep Nightcrawler fun. The tone of the book has been getting darker lately, and it's just really really important that you keep him fun." And I was like, in any generation of comics, there is a letter to the editor that's like, "Please keep Nightcrawler fun. This is what we want." because he's always fighting against the the tide of misery that often is the X-Men universe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's my that's my two cents on Nightcrawler, my shortest possible two cents. <laughs> Nightcrawler as a beacon of joy. I remember when they killed him in the comics and it was like the death of joy. And then when he came back, it was literally like a trip to heaven to get him to return. And he he's a character that represents that in such uh, large ways. Uh, Seth and Stephanie, do you have thoughts on Nightcrawler? All right, Seth, come on. I was giving you that minute to jump in. All right, I'm going to jump I mean, in. of course I do, but I, I wanted to let you go first. Um, so Excalibur number four is the very first comic that I picked up on a spinner rack ever. And I've bought every Excalibur from then till 100 or so. Um, and Excalibur was kind of my gateway to the X-Men because from there I tried to actually figure out what they were all talking about because they, you know, Kitty and 
Kirk were both on the team due to events that had happened that were spoken about and alluded to, but you know, back before the days of the internet, you really had no way to figure it out unless you did your own research. So then I would go and try to pick up the X-Men who were in a kind of shattered team at the time and try to figure out the whole background of it. And that was the most fun mystery of being a kid was trying to piece together everything you didn't understand or why it was, uh, how these stories were existing and the, what, uh, you know, what stepstones kind of happened along the way to make, to bring everybody to where they were. And they felt so human because they had lived these experiences that they would refer to that you kind of felt like everybody who's reading it knew about, but you, so you had to go figure it out. And to have such solid characters, especially between Kitty and Kurt, that you wanted to figure that out. I mean, that means that they, they were memorable and felt real and felt interesting and exciting. And they felt uh, like they just had depth that you wanted to understand. And that's really a, an awesome thing about a character, um, many characters, but especially uh, Kurt and many of the X-Men. Uh, you wanted to know what made them or what brought them to this point. And I love that about I love that about him and, and so many other uh, ones that have been written by Claremont. I think that's just great. Stephanie? Yeah, so definitely everything Anna and um, Seth said, particularly uh, Nightcrawler being, uh, you, you can't hide him being a mutant, right? He doesn't pass like, oh, I'm a telepath, but you know, I could pass, right? I look human or whatever. Um, but for me, the most, um, the thing I was drawn most to at Nightcrawler is his Catholicism and his Catholic guilt. Um, I liked being taken through the journey of his Catholicism. Um, one, because you know, maybe I'm a Pisces and very spiritual, who knows? I've certainly spent a lot of time in my younger life um, trying to understand human spirituality, religion, and all of that sort of stuff. So I have that propensity for those narratives. Also, I've been around a lot of Catholics and uh, <laughs> I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm Catholic, I got guilt. So I've always been intrigued <laughs> by this heavy burden, this sense of uh, sin and um, very influential. Till X-Men 137, where Nightcrawler, sorry, everything's about Gene, um, to me, <laughs> <laughs> for X-Men at least. Um, but I was really touched by how Nightcrawler took us through trying to, how then can I forgive Gene? And really trying to understand people's acts, in her case, genocide, killing billions, um, and trying to reconcile this through religion, through goodness, and understanding, you know, what does it mean to forgive someone? Um, so I appreciated Nightcrawler bringing that aspect um, in reading comics and, 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 and seeing how does one connect with God or spirituality and understanding life. Yeah, beautiful thoughts from all of you. Thank you. Nightcrawler is blue. He has three fingers and two toes and a long tail and pointy ears and glowing yellow eyes. He can teleport short or long distances, depending on how powered up he is at the time. And he disappears in kind of a purple, smoky dissipation with the sound effect BAMF, and it smells like sulfur when he teleports somewhere else, uh, or brimstone. He's a swashbuckler. He loves, he's a trained trapeze artist, as we're going to see in this issue. He loves using his agility. He can crawl on walls and meld into shadow. He is a really cool character and uh, represents a lot of what we're talking about today. I'm going to go to Krakoa for a minute. In the modern era of comics, Nightcrawler has been the beacon of hope on Krakoa. Mutants have formed their own government. He has been the person that they have turned to to try to find the soul of mutants in this space. And he has formed 
uh, kind of a new religious way of thinking with the spark. Uh, Cy Spurrier has guided him through a couple of really cool books, uh, Way of X and now Legion of X, where they're really taking Nightcrawler to some cool places. And we're seeing all these things we love about this character explored in really beautiful ways in the modern comics. It's been wonderful to see him get such a prominent spotlight. Now, the X-Men is in large part soap opera as well. And before we delve into the issue, let me talk about Nightcrawler's particular soap opera for just a minute. We always have to keep in mind that characters introduced into the X-Men are reinterpreted by writers over a period of decades. We're trying to take stories and push them in different directions. Nightcrawler's parents were unrevealed for many years with a lot of hints that it might be uh, Mystique and her wife, Destiny, uh, as their parents. So there was kind of a theory for a long time that Mystique changed her shape, was a male, impregnated Destiny, and then they had this child together. They are also the parents of Rogue, so Nightcrawler and Rogue kind of have a stepbrother, stepsister relationship. But they were never quite allowed to say that out loud in the comics. There was eventually stories told about Mystique posing as a woman in Germany, and she was married to a rich baron whose last name is Wagner, or W-A-G-N-E-R. And uh, when her child was born, uh, she was exposed as a mutant because he was blue and furry and she had to run away and throw him off a waterfall or maybe, you know, let him float down a river and she didn't know what happened to him. And eventually he got found by Margali Sardos, who is a Romani sorceress. Uh, for our listeners, you've heard us talk a little bit about Margali in the episode featuring Marshila Rockwell when she talks about her, uh, her witch's book. Uh, Margali is a complicated woman who has a very interesting moral code. She can come across as very motherly, but she will also like smack you down. <laughs> We're going to talk about her in today's issue. She has two biological children and she is traveling with this kind of traveling circus. Uh, her children are Stefan and Jemaine. And we're not going to see Stefan in this issue, but if you go back to kind of Nightcrawler's original origin story as told by Claremont in X-Men Annual number four, Nightcrawler's kind of first big drama in the books is when he has to kill his own stepbrother. The story we're reading today takes place prior to that. Uh, Jemaine Sardos, uh, Anna, let me turn this one over to you if you're willing. Tell us about Jemaine Sardos slash Amanda Sefton. Who is she? <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, well, originally, she was just Kurt's girlfriend, well, in a different identity as Amanda Sefton, and then is revealed in that um, uncanny annual number four as his foster sister, which makes him excited rather than grossed out because he is in a romantic relationship with his foster sister. Blame Claremont. Everybody hates it. <laughs> it's not my fault. I had candidate as they're, you know, they're just circus sweethearts. It was a communal living situation, maybe, you know, brother, sister is just sort of more, more metaphorical. I make it work for myself, you know, because it's the weirdest thing where it just, it never comes up as a taboo. Everybody's just like, that's fine. So I'm like, I guess it's fine. But like, people like to make fun of it because it is hilarious and overcomplicated for no reason. But yeah, Jermaine slash Amanda has been represented various ways at various times. In this particular comic that we're talking about today, she's set up as a disciple of her mother, Margali, and there is precedent for that. Um, she appeared in a Doctor Strange issue as, as her disciple um, in the 80s, although that's been inconsistent over the years. So yeah, she's a sorceress. Um, 
usually more of a low-level sorceress, though it depends. She later becomes the ruler of Limbo for a time in a very confusing limited series that's called Magic, but it's not the magic you're thinking of. It's Amanda Sefton, who was called Magic while Magic was dead, Ileana Rasputin, and she had the Soul Sword for a while, even though that also makes no sense, because originally the Soul Sword was supposed to be part of Ileana's soul, and yet you see a retconning of it that happens in the early 90s, where soul steel is apparently this mystical substance that just exists in the world and you can make various things out of it so this is in the aftermath of that retconning where you're having the soul sword associated with amanda sefton and margali and that's going to go on for a while until eventually uh pixie jams her hand into kurt's stomach and takes the soul sword back and then it gets back to magic x-men comics everybody we're not going to take yeah, time to explore um, all that today, but yes. Yeah, but like, <laughs> so Amanda Sefton is outnerded. <laughs> what, what was that, Stephanie? Sorry, I said Seth and I are outnerded. Between you, you and Anna, <laughs> we're outnerded here. <laughs> but Amanda is currently off the board. Um, she was quote unquote killed in the um, 2014 Nightcrawler solo series by Chris Claremont early into that run technically sort of sucked through a portal, so nebulous, but we haven't seen her since 2014, even though Margali has recently reappeared in the comics, but no sign yet whether we'll be seeing Amanda again. I would suspect people like her being off the board because they don't want to deal with the foster sibling thing and they just would rather not, but, um, but I miss her and I was very sad when they got rid of her because it's not her fault and she deserves better, so maybe someday. So the last continuity continuity setup I'll do here, and for again for longtime listeners, go back and hear the episode that I did uh, focused on the Ungarai with Ariana Mar. We talk about Limbo and Belasco, and we cover Amanda in her magic identity as part of the Black Sun series. So go back there if you'd like to. Marvel has an ancient set of what they call Elder Gods. It's very uh we don't need to go into it they're they're primordial beings who were involved in the creation of the earth and they tend to represent evil we've talked about uh katan a few times and some of these uh these elder gods they uh they are often believed to exist in another dimension and there's an x-men villain who has a bizarre history that we will not get into today but we will be talking about in our next episode which is the trial of Kesar. weirdly this character is going to come up but that's the character belasco and belasco is an, a centuries old sorcerer who's literally the guy from dante's inferno who is obsessed with a different realm called limbo where time passes extremely quickly or extremely slowly you can be an old lady and a kid at the same time sometimes because it's just kind of a weird dimension full of demons and like big emotions and lots of feelings. Madeline Pryor, Ileana Rasputin, Magic are like uh, inherently connected with this realm as is Belasco. And Belasco has some connections to Margali. Sometimes we'll see a little bit of that today. Last thing I want to introduce, we've introduced, uh, we've interviewed Chuck Austin on the podcast a few times. When Chuck Austin was on uh, his run on X-Men, one of the big unsolved mysteries, because they weren't allowed to explore the Destiny Mystique parentage, was Nightcrawler's parentage. Mystique had been revealed as Nightcrawler's mom. He's blue like her. And Chuck told a story about a guy named Azazel, who is a red, demonic-looking mutant who's been alive for centuries. He has a tremendous amount of power. He appears to people as the devil because he can teleport and has brimstone stuff. And he mated with Mystique and uh, produced this child, Kurt, who looks like a mix of his mom and his dad together. 
this Azazel story is not often well remembered by a lot of X-Men fans who don't love this, but it is part of the canon and it does add a lot of complexity to Nightcrawler's character if it's explored right. So we're not going to spend more time on that today, but <laughs> we're going to have Nightcrawler showing up on the show a few times in the coming year. And uh, so that there's a, there's some early exploration of this complex character. So before we jump into the issue review, where we get we're finally getting there now that we've done all of the uh, preamble stuff. Any thoughts from our panel uh, before we jump in? Just that I went back after reading this and uh, read yesterday the Uncanny Annual four, mm -hmm. and it, Amanda doesn't look any different than Jermaine. So I don't understand when she shows herself oh we lost anna when she shows herself to uh kurt as a big reveal how did he not know it was her <laughs> her hair is the same color she looks exactly the same she's the same height she has the same face uh she has magic <laughs> <laughs> right anna uh anna introduced the idea of them as kind of foster siblings when I try to retcon, the, or not retcon, reconcile that in my brain, I picture Margali is not a very motherly person. So I picture Kurt growing up in this circus in like a very community environment where everyone's kind of his mom and everyone's kind of his dad. And Margali's the person that like puts him to bed at night. And, and he's part of this community upraising. So when I think of it that way, his connection to Jemaine, who is technically his foster sister, isn't that crucial to it doesn't have to be creepy is what i'm getting at if they grew up knowing they're not blood relatives it becomes then a love story of here's this girl that i grew up loving and he has certainly had other love interests over the years yeah i definitely read it as like she was in charge of the circus she was like the mother of it all you know because they all kind of treated her that way and a lot of the things that like they were very deferential to her she's you know, scary like, yeah <laughs> and she's got yeah, she's got a great character design i love the way she looks uh, Stephanie, do you have any thoughts on Margali Shardos? No, no, I, I agree. Uh, don't mess with her. Um, and I totally see her as like the mom without being the mom. It's just I'm the head boss. You can call me mom. I'm not going to give you some love like, you know, bake you cookies. <laughs> I'll put you in line and tell you what's good for you. Um, but yeah, I could see it totally that way, too. I see her as like the mom who drinks too much. Not not literally, but like, I want you close to me when I want you close. Otherwise, get the hell away and stay quiet because right. I do not want The matriarch. You. How about that? She's the matriarch. I'll call her the matriarch, not mom. Matriarch. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce today's issue. Now, it looks like Anna has had some issues and had to pop out. We're going to keep going. I hope she'll rejoin us. Uh, but if not, I'll make sure to connect with her after. Uh, today's issue is Excalibur minus one. Again, this is from the flashback month in 1997. The writer on this is a friend of the podcast, Ben Robb, who is just such a delightful guy. Uh, this is being written during a time when Excalibur had kind of been its own book for a long time. And they were now working to make the X-Men titles a more cohesive line. Uh, ben Robb is telling a story uh, set in the pre-X-Men continuity here. Now, the assignment is, how do you take the current story you're telling in the present and tie it back into the past, but still keep it relevant to the present and also give us new information and don't change the playing board at all? So when he takes Belasco and Margali and Jemaine and Nightcrawler in this, it's very much a flashback story. It is not without flaw. Uh, it's not my favorite art style. We'll talk about the art during the show today as well. But I do see where it fits and how well and seamlessly it fits into the idea of Flashback Month and what it represented at the time. Uh, 
The pencilers on this book are Rob Haynes and Casey Jones. The inker is Nathan Massengill. The editor is Matt Idelson. Now, we start this book out <clears throat> like so many of the other books. Well, actually, briefly, let's talk about the cover. Uh, Stan Lee, in these flashback months, every issue, he opens up with being the guy who's introducing things. He's on the cover in the role of kind of the barker, who's the guy uh, at the circus who's like, step right up, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. It's the strangest show on earth. And he's standing in front of a bunch of posters representing some of the acts from the show. What are your thoughts on this cover before we jump in? <laughs> it, it's a throwback cover. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's trying to, you know, give you the nostalgia feeling and uh, put everybody in the posters where, you know, they were in the old arcade cover. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it totally worked for me. Um, I mean, we'll talk more when we get into the comic, but it, it sets the tone for the colors that we're going to see. Like, I don't know, Seth, these are called flats or something, but like, this color theme we're going to see throughout the entire comic. So it definitely got my attention. And um, that's totally Stanley. <laughs> he didn't need that. That's just his personality, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're just going out of their way to make sure you know that it's a throwback issue. Uh, when you reference the arcade issue early yeah. on in Claremont's run, there's a classic story where arcade, I think it's arcade and Mesmero. It's been a minute. Uh, they have captured the X-Men and they're putting them into this like circus acts where they have to perform. That actually might just be Mesmero, the one I'm thinking of. And then Arcade does a similar thing later on. Now, as we open the book, we've got this weird image. I showed my kids this picture and they're like, Ugh! <laughs> they were not a fan of this picture. It's a giant image of Stanley in a giant purple hat kind of bending forward. He's got a huge head. And he's basically saying, you know, hey, let's go back in time to Winseldorf and tell this story about Nightcrawler. And he's very much, if you guys have seen the movie Cabaret, he's very much like Joel Gray's character in Cabaret, like Vinokoman, like to our to our acts, right? And weirdly, the Cabaret or like the Moulin Rouge have that similar energy to the circus. Let's look at these crazy things these people can do as we entertain you. Uh, any any thoughts on uh, this kind of opening page with Stanley represented here? I liked it. I mean, it kind of has that funhouse effect. I mean, that's what I thought of immediately, like those funhouse mirrors that are a little warped. And I don't know. I like that, Chad. I think it's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, like a funhouse creepy. <laughs> Fantastic. Anna, uh, Anna's back. Will you take us through the first few pages of the book? I just started with Stan Lee's narration. Tell us what happens as we open this story on Nightcrawler and Jermaine. Did you talk about the cover yet? You can share your thoughts. We did, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, well, no. I just wanted to make sure that we knew it was an homage to X-Men 111. And um, and did you talk about the flashback event itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we talked about that. I thought it was a lovely homage. And the flashback event had a number of fun homages, even though apparently it was a very financially unsuccessful event. But such was the case with many things at Marvel at this time. <laughs> And things I was very weird. For I them. was in high school when they did the flashback event, and I thought it was so cool. Like I was, one it made me wanted to go dig out all these back issues and find out what was happening. It was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, well, I got it, so it, it, it hooked somebody. <laughs> 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 there, a lot of them are fun. I think I like a lot of them. I've read the Daredevil ones, and I, the Silver Surfer one is really good. I really mm -hmm. love that one a lot. Well, so it was a it was across the entire uh, line of books at Marvel. It just wasn't an X Men thing. No, it was all books. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Yep. Yeah, all the books that month went to flashback issues. It was like an event. Um, yeah, I mean, the Stan Lee thing, I mean, I was like, I'm sure somebody else could write something super smart about like the status of Stan Lee in the Marvel Universe at this time and the way he'd become kind of a mythic figure and, you know, him being a character in the books is not unprecedented, you know, going way back to the origins of Marvel Comics, but still having them embrace that so wholeheartedly in this event, I think is interesting. I don't really have thoughts about it beyond that other than that, the self-reflexivity of like doing Stanley presents, but literally having Stanley present it does something and it's fun. But if you're one of those people that's mad about Stan taking too much credit for everything in Marvel and want to go to that well of it, then I could see you having other feelings about it as well. I'd prefer the watcher. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Anna, tell us, tell us how the book opens. What happens at the beginning? Well, you have this setup of, of Kurt and Jemaine at this time. She hadn't taken on the Amanda identity yet um, at the circus, but confusing because she gets referred to as Jemaine and Amanda here. <laughs> One of those comics things, just run with it. They're doing their trapeze act, which they're, uh, there's precedent for this, for them being an act in the circus. I think the first time we saw them in these costumes together was in... X-Men Unlimited number four, which is the issue that reveals Mystique as Kurt's mom. I mean, I find it very interesting that they wear the same costume at the circus and then that becomes Kurt's X-Men costume because, I don't know, as somebody who both likes Nightcrawler and wants to be him, like the blonde girl in the Nightcrawler costume appeals to me as a visual, um, who gets to have a lot of the same abilities that he has because she's also an acrobat. So yeah, they're doing their trapeze thing. Stanley's introducing it as the ringmaster. And then Jemaine loses her grip, which I don't love because, I mean, is she just bad at being a trapeze artist? There's not really an explanation for why that happens, but it's a very dynamic visual sort of of, of her body foreshortened heading up to, to Kurt reaching for her. And then he does the thing where he teleports to catch her, which has been replicated in some subsequent comics as well, retelling various versions of this time. And then we get something a little bit romancy, which, yeah, I did a painting of one of these panels that's like on my wall of the one of him kissing her and we get some romanciness here. And she's got a great line here of like... Then you whisk me backstage, hoping to seduce me with your charms, eh, Air Goblin? It's like, oh my god. I mean, I guess this is the way they talk to each other. I'll allow it, because it's pretty charming, and they're drawn very pretty, with all sorts of flowing hair and very lush lips. And I will allow it on that level. And again, I think when you're reading this particular comic, you definitely don't have to read them as siblings, because it's not really emphasized, and you could just read them as, like you know, trapeze lovebirds, and that's how I'm choosing to read it. Please don't at me about the foster sibling thing. I don't want to talk about it, but yeah, I don't know. These page opening pages worked for me. I love seeing them interact and getting this sort of glimpse of their past and seeing them in love too, which, you know, I'm a romancy person. I'm always going to be here for the romance, X-Men plus romance, what's not to love. So yeah, I really enjoyed sort of the fluid grace of these pages as well. I had trouble figuring out which of the two artists did which sections of this book because I think some of them, I don't think it's like split up based on pages. I think that there's a lot of collaboration here. So I found that hard to, to figure out, but definitely the fluidity of these opening pages worked really well for me. 
there is a moment where when uh when Jemaine is falling there's a shot to the crowd and they're like oh no she's gonna fall and there's this woman who is large in like a backless blue dress like fully bent over like oh no <laughs> i don't know what it was about that image but i'm like no there are a lot of a lot of booty angles uh, a lot of sexy uh body shots in those first opening pages <laughs> it's setting uh, a tone you know <laughs> Kurt announces to Jermaine that he is planning to leave the circus. He wants to go off on his own and kind of find himself. And she is, of course, distraught. We then see all of their fellow performers who are, frankly, just their family, their entire community coming in. Now, these are characters that appear here. And then they appear in the earlier referenced Chris Claremont uh, Nightcrawler series, volume four. They make an appearance in that series as well. And we talked a little bit at the beginning about the sensitivity of freak shows. We want to assume that this is a circus that's very good to its performers and very kind. And these are lovely characters that are occasionally drawn like a little bit super powered. Among them, we have Haus, H-A-U-S. These are all like German words. He's the big strong man in like the, the polka dot. Well, they're all wearing polka dot like purple polka dot on yellow, like uh, like leotards and costumes. Uh, he's very, not very smart or not very intelligent. Uh, he reminds me of Ox from the Enforcers. We've got Gumi, who is the very uh, stretchy contortionist. who's a very tall, thin woman. There are two uh, clowns who are Siamese twins, which means two different heads on one body. Uh, who are painted as clowns. Their names are not given. And then we have uh, F-E-U-E-R, Feuer, uh, in, which is fire in German, Feuer the Fire Eater. And all of these characters, except for the clowns, come back in the later Claremont series, if you want to look that up in volume four. They come in and they're very worried. Uh, again, they're very at home with uh, Kurt and Jemaine. There's kind of some antics between them and cute little interactions. And then they are... Well, actually, before I continue, do you guys have thoughts on the portrayal of these characters from the circus or the freak show? Uh, what were your thoughts on seeing these characters here? I think like using them as comedy foils made me nervous at some points because that's a really hard line to walk. But I had mixed feelings about there's that element to it. But then it's also very humanizing because there's a later scene where you see people having a bath and Kurt just walks in and it's very normal and it's sort of not played for sort of excessive comedy. So I had mixed feelings about it. I think the best thing I could say is that I've definitely seen worse in the pages of Marvel comics. And this is one of the more humanizing representations of freak shows in that space, though not necessarily everything I would want from that representation. It does seem to be treated with a certain amount of sensitivity. Uh, Seth, go ahead. Or, or was it Stephanie? I apologize. Yeah, sorry, it was me. I unmuted. Um, yeah, no, I totally think they they seem happy, and and that that made me feel good. And definitely that bath scene of them getting ready definitely helped with any uneasiness. Um, so I think in terms of as good as it gets and for the time period, I, I, it worked. Uh. Then we go to Margali. She is the circus's fortune teller back in her little kind of wooden trailer. She is very ominously shown for the first time here, uh, floating, levitating in the air above a pentagram with candles on the points. Uh, she's doing like a Doctor Strange spell by the Hoary Hosts, which is a reference to the realm of Hogoth, uh, by the Ragged Rings, which is a reference to the realm of Ragador. Uh, she's looking into the future and sensing that uh, her daughter is going to try to leave. 
Right then, Jemaine comes back and says, uh, Mom, I, I'm thinking of going with Kurt. Margali turns, looks over her shoulder, and there's a skull reflected in her eye. Uh, you're not going anywhere. She says, it's not a matter of age. It's a matter of responsibility. She explains, for centuries, the women in our family have safeguarded a powerful mystical disciple or discipline known as the Winding Way. Now, the Winding Way is another realm. It is a place you can draw power from. It has its own laws. Uh, there is uh, some of this explored in Excalibur at various times with Margali, where there's this idea of there is a succession of power. And if you can kill the person in front of you, you then become the next most powerful. Margali is obsessed with the winding way and the way that Belasco is obsessed with uh, Limbo. And she says, you have to stay here with me. Then she gives Jermaine an image of the future. And the image that is shown is a, a, a floating sword in the air. This is uh, your destiny from the future, she basically says. And this is a replica or, or an image of the soul sword. And I don't know a way to easily, quickly sum up the soul sword, except the person who is in limbo that rules limbo has to have a particular type of scepter or weapon and uh, Ilyana Rasputin, or Magic from the X-Men, has done this for many years because her soul sword is literally constructed from her own soul or pieces of her soul. It has passed ownership from person to person, and the idea is whoever has the soul sword rules. Now, in the recent Dark Web series, if you guys are reading that in Marvel Comics, which literally wrapped up three days before we recorded this in Dark Web finale, uh, Madeline Pryor is now ruling and she has a different type of scepter that uh, she has a different name for it. I've forgotten, uh, but she now rules Limbo. And when the Scarlet Spider or uh, Chasm, the Peter Parker clone, gets it, he then rules Limbo for a minute before uh, Madeline gets it back. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, ideas being explored here. But she's showing uh, Jemaine her future as the ruler of Limbo, which is something that will take place in the comics briefly in the 90s and 2000s before Eliana Rasputin makes her way back. Uh, before we continue, thoughts from the jury on, uh, on this story thus far? I just wanted to say that Belasco's, or do we get to him yet? Nope, I'm skipping ahead. Belasco's coming next. <laughs> All right, so I save, save that vote then. <laughs> Do you want to actually just keep us going, Stephanie? Tell us what happens next. Let's talk about Belasco for a minute. All right. Even though those aren't my pages, fine. <laughs> so um, we all of a sudden see an arm reaching out of a, I guess, the satanic star, magic star, whatever you want to um, uh, call that. And it's Belasco. Um, and, uh, and this was uh, the thoughts I had with very interesting lettering. Didn't really work for me. His little sort of demonic uh, lettering uh, in his voice. And um, uh, Margali, uh, he takes the uh, soul sword and sort of touches um, Jemaine's head and Margali sort of pushes her back and says, do not worry, the lesser demon um, and of my making or something like that. Um, fear not, child, she says. Um, and then we get a shazash. I love that, that sound effect, shazash. And Morgali banishes Belasco um, away, and uh, Jemaine affirms her intention uh, to her mom to leave the circus and the mother-daughter tradition behind. And Morgali affirms her sorrow on her daughter's decision, but not in a sort of motherly way, in a sort of fuck around and find out, bitch. <laughs> more of a, that's more of the tone. Um, Mother knows best. It's one of those moments. <laughs> Can't believe you're not going to comment on Belasco and Margulies like matching fingernails. Apparently, if you it, if you 
practice magic. You have to grow out your fingernails to minimum of three to four inches. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, that comes back in, in a few, in, in some next pages, right? Same person, right? Okay. So jumping ahead, Seth. But good. I didn't notice that. that that's awesome. Uh, then we're in the Black Forest with um, uh, Jemaine, and she's sitting alone and in thought about her unfair burden of following the family tradition of the winding way, life as a witch. Um, I will note the hypocrisy, or she's noting actually, not me, <laughs> the hypocrisy of her brother Stefan not sharing this burden of having to follow family tradition and getting to do what uh, what he wants. Um, and she again affirms her individual wish to live a life in love beside the one she loves, Nightcrawler, while reaching her fingers out to a glowing, I don't know, firefly. I don't know if this is Morgulli watching her, but there's something definitely magical in that moment uh, in the Black Forest. Um, and then sort of a contrast, uh, we're getting into then uh, Kurt's head uh, the next day, and he's looking for um, Jemaine and, and asking, um, what do we call this group again, uh, Chad? Oh, the it's, I mean, it's the freak show, but it's officially called Air Getman's Traveling Menagerie. Okay, we'll say freak show if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if they've seen her um, and uh, they haven't, and we're sort of getting this foreshadowing, like, where is she? Um, and uh, Kurt notes uh, that he prays, am I, um, yeah, skip my head, no, that he prays for whoever comes between mother and daughter. Um, so again, we're getting some foreshadowing with a shot of Sabu, Sabu, um, who asks if he can fill in for Jermaine. So now we're back, now we are in the tent um, and uh, Jermaine's practicing and um, Sabu is, I, I think he's the one who taught Nightcrawler, right? How to be an yeah, acrobat. This is a character who shows up right now and is only oh, just, the story, but he's apparently the man who taught Kurt and Jermaine about trapeze artists. He's he's a he's kind of like the swordsman to their Hawkeye for our Marvel listeners out there who know what okay. that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, he asked uh, Jermaine if he can fill in for her since it's Nightcrawler's last performance. So here I know it's also hers. <laughs> it's also her last performance, but nobody seems to care about that. Okay, maybe Nightcrawler is the, the okay, whatever. Still, I'm noting that. Um, <laughs> uh, and she does accept, she's like, sure, filling in, not, no thought like, but it's also mine and maybe I want to have one last time in the circus. Okay, fine. Um, and Sabu tries to, uh, have her reconsider her decision to defy her mother, uh, noting how powerful, uh, Morgali is and Jemaine stands strong on her intention, um, to go ahead and we get some nice, uh, a nice shot, I will say. I like. I feel like I'm in that circus tent with the stripes. Uh, again, I, is this flat colors stuff that we're seeing here? You know, very, I, I have to say, at first, as these colors bothered me, I, I they were just too simple. But then, in a second read, I, I appreciate them more now. The solid um, backgrounds. You got the characters up front, like a solid color in the background, and I think it is called flats. But it's a flats, little jarring right? in the first read. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's because a the bit artist dark. didn't draw any backgrounds in this whole comic book. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that too. <laughs> But I do like the way that the artist and writer are sort of playing and like we're getting a slow zoom in in each panel of Sabu. And as we're reading the words that there's going to be consequences, there's going to be consequences. You shouldn't defy your mother. I, I like that as a device. And then, uh, Seth, walk us through the, the ending of the book. How does it wrap up? Sure. So after the scene with Sabu, you know, he's like, hey, you know, she might be listening to you. And guess what? She is. She's been eavesdropping 
using her chin blood for magic, I guess. <laughs> I don't quite get what's happening here, but she's bleeding from her chin onto a, a you know an all-seeing eye that she's uh, kind of spying with her creepy, creepy long nails. And she decides to make a sacrifice to keep Jermaine to uphold the sanctity of their coven, a true and terrible sacrifice, which we'll come back later. Uh, then you flip ahead to page 17, and it's uh, later that night. So after night has fallen, and it's poor Nightcrawler's, or not poor Nightcrawler's, Nightcrawler's last show. Everybody's excited for him. Like you said, nobody cares about poor Jermaine. And the house is packed. It's going to be a killer show. Lots more, uh, you know really on the nose kind of stuff we switch scenes and she's packing away jermaine is away in her cabin no one knows where she is but she's just packing i don't know why she's not there she's just got to get her stuff together and be off off panel for this to happen and belasco appears and he starts to taunt her um he taunts her that she's breaking the chain of command on the winding way and he's gonna get the cell sword so stress she's stressing out she's getting all upset but she's not scared really um you know, my mom's going to take care of this, but actually her mom is taking care of it, but not in the way she thinks. And she's, there's a big snap from someplace else and a scream. So I think we're all supposed to worry it's Nightcrawler, even though we know it's not. But where she's worried it's Nightcrawler, we're sure. And she runs off and Belasco is revealed to be Margoli. And uh, that's, you know, her, her a plan has come to fruition. And so there's a screaming mob and Jermaine is running through it and she's shocked and upset because it turns out that it was Sabu that fell and Nightcrawler somehow was not able to teleport and catch him, even though Nightcrawler can always teleport and catch everybody. But for this episode, he could not make it in time. And so Jermaine is beside herself. Magic. It's magic. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe she made him fall extra fast. Marbley made sure he was going down. <laughs> And uh, so Jermaine is beside herself and very, very upset and it fades to black and they have the funeral off panel and it's very sad, I guess. And it turns to Jermaine saying, ready to go, hon, which does not sound German at all, but he says, yep, he's ready. And he packed up all his Errol Flynn memorabilia. I also went off on a little Wikipedia hole that I did not know Errol Flynn was so creepy. Um, he had some serious issues with women. Uh -huh. Like, Yeah. So I'm I'm surprised. Wait, I mean, who? I guess back then it who? wasn't as obvious, but Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn, like the classic Hollywood actor, was like the guy in old black and white films who was the swashbuckler, the pirate, the 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 sword guy. But yeah, if you look up his biography, there's some problematic concerns in it. <laughs> he had um, uh, a well-known predilection for underage girls. Uh -huh. The peepholes in the women's bathrooms oh. was a real creepy part, but yeah, they're all, all across the board not great. Yeah, I was uh yeah so i was like oh I, I should like read up a little bit more about like him like what like what was his deal and then i read and i was like oh okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> so the, the story is winding down here and jemaine has decided to stay mother was right uh sad for her sad for kurt but it sends Kurt on his way and sends her off to get her magical training so she can become amanda sefton and everything can fall into the places it was supposed to fall into according to Marbley. Except Amanda Sefton's a flight attendant, but we'll cover that another time. <laughs> the, uh, this is very much like the plot from Tangled, the Disney movie Tangled, where like 
The mother is manipulating events to keep things in her favor. And Margali comes across as a pretty scary source here. And this is where Ben Rab did a great job because he's setting up this old story. And then he brings Margali in as a threat in his more modern work and the subsequent issues. Uh, overall, I like this issue. I think it sets things up really well. There's some areas of the execution. The art is jarring for me a little bit. I think it's mostly the solid color backgrounds. But I've gotten to know Ben, and I think it's a sensitive story that really works to portray, again, that modern content from the old stuff. And it works seamlessly into Kurt's origin story, which is also a really nice thing. Uh, Anna, what were your thoughts on the issue as a whole? I do enjoy this issue quite a bit for all the reasons you said. Usually when creators revisit Nightcrawler's origin story, they just make it more confusing. It's like a hallmark <laughs> of the character. This one doesn't really do that. I think it actually explains the motivations behind the characters and gives us some depth to Margali's character, which she doesn't always have. Sometimes she shows up just as a cackling evil villain, and I really don't like that version of the character, especially because, I don't know, given the portrayal of Romani characters in comics over the years, I'm just always like, please handle it sensitively, and some people don't. So I did like the portrayal of her here as someone who's definitely evil, but has sort of a context for her villainy. I mean, she's not evil in good ways or anything like that, like it's selfish ways. Um, but at the same time, she's a schemer rather than just sort of like a cackling villain. And it gives her an intelligence and it gives her a purpose. And I like that about it. And just seeing the ways that these characters' histories are all tangled together. And that is going to affect future events <laughs> in some satisfying ways and in some unsatisfying ways. But yeah, I think that he's sort of using using the the benefits of, of the flashback event, I mean, very well for his own purposes and the story he was telling in Excalibur at the time. So I think it's an issue that if you were reading Excalibur at the time and you encountered this, it wouldn't feel out of step with the story that you were reading. It would add important context. And I think... Yeah, that's doing doing the best of both worlds. And I really like the art and the colors. I think it's going for a vintage feel with the flats. And they did that a lot throughout the flashback event. So I was I was more of a fan of it than I think some of you were. But one of the interesting things about the portrayal of Margali, there's uh there's never a clear image of her face here. And it took me till my second read to notice. She's always turned or in shadow, with the exception being when she's holding that like mystic ball and she's dripping like black eldritch energy or like blood out of her chin over it. And you're like, whoa, like she looks really scary. But she's the creepy witch in the woods. We will talk more about the sensitivity of Romani characters as they are portrayed in comics, particularly in relation to the Scarlet Witch and Margali Shardos. Uh, Margali is also being used by modern readers uh, in the series Legion of X right now uh, by Cy Spurrier, and she's come back in a really big way on Krakoa, and it's it's super cool to see her there. Uh, uh, Stephanie, do you have final thoughts on the book? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I really like thinking about the sort of larger story of how much is fate and how much is it other people um, trying to control your destiny and making you think it's fate? And is there any difference between the two? You know, particularly when it comes to love. I mean, if you ask the curtain, Amanda or Jermaine, um, this was the right decision because I'm going to respect your decision. I understand why would you leave now? That makes sense. But when you remove yourself and you understand what was orchestrated here, is it still the right decision? Um, so I was left with that and trying, how do you live life and knowing what's the right thing and how much did evil, maybe outside forces make you think that's the right thing to get their objective? So I found it to be a deep comic. Lovely. Seth, do you have final thoughts? 
Yeah, you know, after I read this, I, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, when I went and read the Uncanny X-Men annual number four, it paired well, and it led well into that. And I thought it was actually a nice companion piece. And I thought they read well together. And I would suggest anybody reading this, pick that up as well, because it kind of has like a nice marriage between the two and the reasons why and you understand a little bit. I did want to ask you all because you're far more uh, educated in the world of Nightcrawler than I am. Now, I did read the, the little flashback of Jermaine's brother. Was he suffering from mental illness or corruption from the winding way? I never quite understood what made him become bad or make that pact. That didn't wasn't quite clear to me. And I was wondering if it was ever kind of Explain yeah, it. I'll I'll cover this in a, in a quick sentence, and then Anna, if you want to add to it, this is a this is a story we'll cover in deeper depth in the podcast in the future. But Stefan is the son of Margali. He kind of seems to know that he's on a dark path, that he's leading toward a dark way, and it does seem to be there's an element of mental illness, but also he's being corrupted by the forces. And so he asks Kurt at one point, like, if I ever go down this dark path, I want you to kill me, please. Like that's what I'm looking for, and Kurt does. And right around that time, Margali and Jermaine go missing, and he doesn't see them again for a long time until we go to that X-Men annual number four, which is when Margali comes back to get revenge against Kurt for the death of her child. Uh, so it's, it's he's only a character that's shown up a couple of times, but it's an, an inherent part of, of Nightcrawler's transition from his origins into his reason for going to the X-Men. Because Professor X rescues him in the German village when the mob's chasing him down, and Giant says X-Men number one, which is right after he has killed Stefan. So when, uh, when he joins, that's kind of his state of mind. Uh, Anna, do you have uh, additional thoughts on that? No, there's no point in going down that rabbit hole. But the, <laughs> the revisiting of it that you'd be looking for is the Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and Derek Robertson Nightcrawler series from 2006 that revisits some of this history and does make it more confusing, though I'd really like that series as a whole. Um, and you get some exploration of like, was like Stefan possessed? Was he not in, in that series? So that's the one to look for if you want to see that story play out. Fantastic. Cool. Thank you. Well, and it launches Nightcrawler right from the beginning into I'm a Christian man who had to kill someone and now they're after me. You know, like it's a, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I love Nightcrawler. I love this series and I so admire and respect each of you. Thank you for spending your time. This is one of the best looking groups we've ever had on this show. <laughs> I don't say that every week, I promise. <laughs> as we are wrapping up, uh, let's, uh, let's have each of us as we're doing our outro, let everybody know where they can find you online. And if you'd like to plug anything, recognizing we're re uh, releasing this episode on February 20th, uh, is there anything you would like to announce? Uh, on Gray Malkin Lane, you can find me, Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me. The uh, next show after this is the giant culmination of my initial a uh, quest on this podcast, which is covering the 1960s X-Men. So the very next episode after this is going to be X-Men number 65, which is uh, featuring Alex Segura and Keith DeCandido. And then we have the uh, epic finale, which is X-Men 66. And we have the all-star group of Jordan White, Anthony Oliveira, Josh Trujillo, my second interview with Roy Thomas. And it's going to be followed up by an epic uh, X-Men Silver Age Jeopardy game uh, that I'm really excited about. Then we launch into kind of some new content on the show after that. So be prepared for our big kind of 4th of July celebration uh, wrapping up the Silver Age. Uh, on the Patreon, the next episode coming out right after this is going to be either my episode on uh, Madame Sanctity with Demanda Martini or my episode on The Warlock, uh, Mahayogi, 
<laughs> that guy. Ooh. Okay. Uh, and my guest on that one's Bob Quinn. If you know Bob, we're going to be doing a lot of laughing and it's going to be uh, delightful. Uh, so let's go in the same order for our outros. Uh, Seth, Anna, and then Stephanie. Chad, the fact that you even bring up the 4th of July right now, just it hurts my brain. Come on. <laughs> Get a little ahead of yourself. So, um, metaphorical, Seth. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a long ways off, especially because it's like three degrees out right now. Fireworks, not the actual 4th of July. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, I um, just got that too. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me at SC Martell on most social media platforms. And if you are the type of person who likes a coming-of-age supernatural friendship book with some 90s nostalgia thrown in, then you might like The Mare, and you should check it out. This is coming out February 20th. You will be able to get it on March 28th, so you can pre-order it and check it out, and I really hope you like it. Uh, I'm also on SethChristianMartel.com, and uh, near and around this podcast, too, with cards and drawings and things. So... That's about it for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that this is coming up February 20th, the paperback edition of my edited anthology, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy of the Superhero is supposed to be out in March. Um, hopefully it will be. I think you can currently pre-order it from the University of Texas Press website, which is nice. It's cheaper than the hardcover. Um, so look out for that. You can find me on Twitter just under my name, Papard underscore Anna. You can also find me at the Gosh Golly Wow podcast. That's at Gosh Golly Wow on Twitter. You can also find me at Sequential Scholars on Twitter. At, on Twitter, we're at Sex Scholars. It sounds like Sex Scholars. Yes, I find that very amusing. Um, and there's websites for both of those as well. SequentialScholars.com and GoshGollyWow.com. If you want to read some of my writing, um, head over to my profile on Academia.edu. I've got a piece about Nightcrawler and Swashbuckling and the Errol Flynn context and how that relates historically to the character, which is relevant to our discussion today. Talking a little bit about the, yeah, the complicated cultural context of Errol Flynn, talking about the sexual stuff stuff and the queer legacy of that character. Uh, character. Errol Flynn is a character in a lot of ways, um, but relating to Nightcrawler, the character, and lots of other fun essays there, like the Jean Grey piece that we also mentioned. And yes, yeah, Seth mentioned Excalibur number four as a favorite issue. I've written an essay specifically about that issue, which is one of my favorites, which you can also find there. So yeah, find me all those places. Happy to chat. Fantastic. And finally, Stephanie. Yeah, if you do social media, I'm the Nina Galaxy on Instagram and Hive, uh, Twitter, which everyone come on do Hive, <laughs> so I don't have to use Zoe Health anymore. Um, I'm Zoe Health on Twitter. If you want, want to go to my website, Linktree is probably the easiest. The Nina Galaxy. You want to take a shot at my long name, StephanieNinaPizzarillos.com is my website. Um, but yeah, in terms of plugging, everyone, please go out and pre-order The Mare, um, whether it's from your, this is Seth's uh, stuff, not me. I got nothing to plug except Seth's beautiful graphic novel. Um, go to, yeah, go to your indie shop. Um, if you've done that already or you do online, then how about your library, your local library? Tell them you want them to order it. Um, that really helps authors. And Seth's a great author, great illustrator, and a great guy. So The Mare. I am so in awe of all three of you. Uh, Seth, who is 
easily my favorite artist uh, at this point in my life. Seth and I have some fun little collabs that we're going to be putting out around the time of this episode as well. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, some day in the life sketches of some obscure characters. And it's really fun. And if you haven't seen our Toad story, it's also really fun too. It's a five page. I'll put that up around this time as well. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to our guests, Seth and Stephanie. It's so great to see you. And it's so great to get to know you. I'm so impressed uh, by all of you. Uh, thank you for your time. Next episode coming out in three days is the trial of Kevin Plunder, Kesar. So watch for that. It's so fun. And we will see you all back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane.